everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not going to be with me today because instead I'm going to be chatting to Alexi Lalas. Uh, we usually have Alexi on to talk about specific moments or competitions, things like that, things that are current. Since we don't have any current games to discuss, we're going to be taking a look back at Alexi's five most memorable games for the U.S. men's national team. We get into those games as well as uh, topics like his favorite Mexican international to go drinking with, uh, what Maradona was like way back in 1994, you can guess, uh, and why white racquetball shoes are sometimes essential. Much, much more uh, aside from those topics and those five games. Alexi was very generous with his time, as he tends to be. Uh, so without further delay, with me now, once again, not in person, unfortunately. I think last time we were in person, not so much this time, but I've got Alexi Lalas on the other end of the line. Hello, Alexi. Greetings, my friend. Uh, yes, uh, last time I saw you, I think it was in person. Uh, mm-hmm. Nobody's seeing anybody in person <laughs> nowadays, so, so no. I hope you and yours uh, and everybody that's listening is staying safe uh, and healthy, both physically and mentally, through these uh, interesting times, shall we say. This too shall pass, mm-hmm. and uh, the sooner the better. Uh, I'm sure I speak for everyone. Uh, we get back to maybe not normalcy, but our, our, whatever the new normal is going to be, and hopefully that includes a lot of soccer. Uh, that that would be uh, that would be ideal for me. Yeah, it is working from home uh, for both me and Daryl. Uh, our wives are both working at home, so we've just you know we've established uh, separate areas, odd couple style. And and she works in her corner, I work in my corner. It works out well, I think. How, how has it been for you? Have you had to do any sort of uh, new provisions, new planning in uh, in the current world? Yeah, so I have uh, children of, of school age and a 14-year-old daughter and an 11-year-old boy, and they are online uh, educating, uh, I guess it would be, which means that they get up every day and they get in front of their screen and they talk to their classmates and obviously their teachers and they go from teacher to teacher and course to course. And I'm really interested actually to see how this all shapes out in terms of the um, you know, possible, I mean, look, there's no silver lining to this or anything like that, but... If if this generation that's going through this right now, which for the foreseeable future is going to looks like it's going to be months, if they end up actually learning more or less, does it stunt their growth? Does it accelerate their growth? Or do we have this built-in excuse for a uh, an age group, if you will, or or it's not quite a generation, but an age group that that missed out on what looks like to be multiple months of their uh, education? I don't know, but you know, we're all together. We all try to stay in our separate areas as much as possible. I was reading that uh, somebody uh, found out that, that he he really likes his wife or loves his wife. We haven't gotten to that point yet where <laughs> I, I have an additional fondness for my significant other, but who knows, uh, given given the, the time that we are going to be spending in close proximity. So be kind, be yeah. kind, and everybody's going to have their moments. So you've got a little bit of free time. Does that mean, are we getting a new album and will it be called Social Distancing? I am sitting in front of two big screens full of Pro, pro Tools, oh, and wow. I continue to do the music. I don't know if it's any good, but it's certainly, uh, I have the time and the ability to do so, so I continue to crank out the music. Some of it is based on our, our new normal here that we have, uh, that we are living, uh, but not necessarily directly. You know, who knows? Uh, who knows? What? Look, there's going to be a lot of books and albums and facial hair and things coming out of this <laughs> this quarantined moment. A lot of it's going to be crap, uh, maybe my, my stuff included. But, you know, when people have a lot of time on their hands, it's amazing the interesting things that they can get up to and the un- un- uninteresting things that they can get up to. Well, hopefully we'll be leaning on the side of interesting uh, today because basically the background would be uh, Daryl and I were preparing to record our Soccer 101 episode about the USA-Mexico game from the 2002 World Cup. Uh, I texted you uh, because I was basically like, like, do they have a, a specific 
specific vendetta against Kobe Jones, and we were kind of going back and forth about that uh, with all the fouling that was happening to him. And that made me realize that we've never really discussed your experiences or never really gotten even like like in depth about them at all uh, when when it comes to playing for the national team, especially against playing for the national team against Mexico. So uh, that's that's why we we have you on today to talk a little bit about what your experiences were like. I know you've got some good stories. Uh, you are in the introduction to basketball because of one of the USA Mexico games. I that's mean, right. I don't know what that's what right. more we need to say. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, you gave me my marching orders and I fulfilled them, I think, uh, in that I have come up with five different games oh, from boy. my uh, uh, national team career that I look to as important. Some of them may be important to others. Some of them may have no importance to others, but obviously it's what's important to me. And I'll explain to you why. With regards to Mexico, just before we start, yeah, you asked me that question and it's look, it's our biggest rival. So it always takes on added meaning. And even from a young age, when I first came into the national team program, it was instilled in me that this is important. This is important. These games are important against Mexico specifically because it's Mexico. You'll, you'll find interviews where I, I use the word hate and we threw that out, but that was a little more hyperbole. And that was kind of, uh, you know, ginning up every, uh, what was going on in that, and that rival. I don't, I don't hate them. I've gone out with those guys since we've gone drinking and had good times and stuff like that. But if ever there was a competition, even in our ripe old age, I'm turning 50 this year, I can't believe it, uh, you can bet your ass that I would want to beat them and that I would gloat if and when I did. And in early days, we didn't do a lot of that. Uh, we didn't do a lot of beating of, uh, of Mexico. So we took our, our lumps, but then we took our, uh, our moments where we had them. So it continues on. It's a great rivalry, obviously, with the proximity and our inter- incredible interaction and connection that we have with, uh, with Mexico. I, don't, I, I just think it's going to be, get better. And I have argued in the past that I think it's the greatest international rivalry in soccer. So go ahead, at me. Well, I, I, I really like that idea because Daryl and I were talking about this a bit uh, off air yesterday, and he was basically saying that he feels like Mexico are the kind of perfect balance to us or the perfect rival to have because they're like at least uh, since the 90s have been at a roughly comparable level it's not like our rival is germany and we're just getting smoked every single time and that it like and because of that the familiarity it brings out the kind of individual battles and the individual rivalries and sometimes we win and sometimes we lose and it does feel like the kind of perfect rival for the last 20 or 30 years or so and, and, you know, rivalries are based in a lot of things, not the least of which is history and uh, things that sometimes have nothing to do with soccer. And with our incredible history with Mexico, good, bad, everywhere in between, and the continued fact that, you know, each and every day in our country, you know, notwithstanding what's going on right now, but Mexico is influential. We talk about Mexico. You know, I... You know, I because of the incredible uh, Mexican American population, and because it's been a such huge part of soccer in my life. Uh, you know, I have I've played against Mexico. I've played with Mexican players. I speak Spanish because you can't live in 2020 in Los Angeles, where I live, or the United States, if you don't understand and speak a little bit of Spanish. And a lot of that comes from soccer. A lot of it comes from traveling and going back and forth and playing these games. So I think it's it's ripe already, even if you're not kicking a ball for that rivalry. Um, and then when you put the ball and you put it into an, uh, a sports uh, a package, if if you will, it just it it ignites it, and it and and it's wonderful. And look, we don't we don't want any violence or we don't want anything like that. But it's it, I think it's a healthy rivalry, and you know everybody loves to put the red, white, and blue on and scream and yell for America. And in the same way that the, you know the Mexican fans are wonderful uh, in the way that they 
and they come down on us, which is a good thing. I mean, I, I loved playing in, uh, for example, a stadium like Azteca where there was 100,000 people screaming and yelling and spitting and throwing things. That, for me, was just as good as 100,000 people in the Rose Bowl uh, screaming and yelling good things and, and uh, wearing that red, white, and blue. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing about that. I had some Azteca questions. I'm glad we're going to get okay. to that. But before we even get to the games, and maybe this is going to come up later, but I have to ask now, you said you've gone out with uh, a few of the Mexican internationals uh, since you all retired, maybe even while you were still active. Who's the most fun or most interesting to go out with uh, for whatever reason? Uh, let's see. Um, Jorge Campos is a trip, uh, and always has been. And it's amazing because a lot of these, uh, Mexican internationals that I played against, uh, and some of them with, I played with Lucas Hernandez at the galaxy, mm-hmm. uh, now have places in the United States and spent a lot of their time in the United States. Either they played in MLS or, you know, they just felt this was better for getting away from a lot of the pressure and mm-hmm. the, uh, and the attention that they garner obviously as, as huge idols and, and icons, some of them. So Jorge Campos is always a trip. He's, uh, he is the most chill dude in the world um, for for as big as he was and the crazy life that he has lived. So he's always fun to uh, to go out with, and he enjoys a good party, just does, like I do. So does he still does he still get recognized every now and then? And is that because he's still wearing the like flamboyant goalkeeper jerseys of the nineties? Because that's what I'm hoping he still wears. Yeah, the whole '90s day glow thing that he, <laughs> you know, that you know, that he made his own and, and was so much in vogue back then. He doesn't do that, and but there's no mistaking who Jorge Campos is with his face and with his grin, his mischievous grin. You know, I once did a, a tequila. We went down to uh, Mexico and did a tequila uh, VIP type of thing with him, which was, you know, put the you know, fox in the hen house. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so l- l- I want to hear about some some of your uh, y- your five games here. Have you gone chronological? Have you gone like most memorable to least memorable? I'm assuming not that one. No, I did do I did it chrono- okay, uh, ro- cool. uh, chronologically. So we're starting in 1993, and you know while we talked about the Mexico rivalry, these are all different games. So cool. we're going to go. There is there is one uh, Mexico game involved. So uh, and for those that don't know, so I started full time playing with the national team in January of 1993, which is also when we all came into residency. And for those that don't know, the 1994 World Cup was the summer of 1994, and for that two years or that year and a half leading up to it, we were in residency in Southern. California, which meant that for all intents and purposes, we were a club team. It was out of necessity. A lot of us didn't have any experience playing. Uh, I, I hadn't been on the books of any club. Myself, Kobe Jones, when we stepped on the field in the summer of 1994, none of us had ever been on the uh, uh, on the books of a club team. So all of our experience was national team, and it it was fostered in that. Uh, residency camp in Mission Viejo uh, down in Southern California. So in 1993, the summer of 1993, there was something going on called the U.S. Cup. Uh, This happened for a number of years. And we played against England in old Foxborough Stadium. Now it's Gillette, but back then it was Foxborough Stadium. Uh, England, uh, uh, New England, and especially Boston, had always been good to the national team. We we went there. We played against the England. It was 2-0. And I, I was getting sporadic playing time. And actually, even before that six months, Bora Milutinovic, our coach, was trying me out. Even you, if you if you look at some of those games, I was at defensive midfield. I was even at a right back position at times. So I really hadn't settled into a center back position that ultimately I would. Uh, and so we played against England. But 
Set pieces, set pieces, set pieces. You know them. You love them. Is this where it starts? Uh, talk is this where your obsession time. starts? It's, well, my obsession because I knew this was the way for me to get on the score sheet. <laughs> and also, there's nothing more impactful than scoring a goal. As much as I love defending, it goes unnoticed. Even by people at the highest level, defending goes, uh, goes unnoticed. But you put the ball in the back of the net, the hardest thing to do in our sport, and people will notice. And so I knew that set pieces were going to be a key to me kind of staking my claim. And Bora knew it too, because he, he would talk to me about, look, this is your opportunity. You're very good in the air. You're tall. We have a lot of good guys uh, that are good in the air. And this is where we're going to do some damage. So against England, I scored a goal against England. And it was obviously an incredible moment for scoring against, against England. We won 2 uh, It was, But it was my coming out party, if you will, for the national team. So many people saw me. And in particular, the English media saw, saw me. You know, I had all the hair and the, and the goatee. And I ran and I slid right in front of the bench. And ultimately, the coach got fired because of that. Um, the, oh. the the England coach. And so it was my first real exposure to the fact that this game was being viewed internationally and, and an understanding of what went, what went on on the field had an impact greater than the actual, the actual goal. And there were ramifications for wins and losses and all that kind of stuff. Until then, I, I was just kind of winging it and running around. So huge, huge moment. I'll never forget it. Uh, it's one of the reasons why when I came back for MLS uh, back in, in 1996, years later, I wanted to go to Boston because it had been so good to me and it and wonderful memories of playing multiple games there, but also including this game in 1993, uh, a 2-0 win versus England in Foxborough Stadium in the U.S. Cup. I scored and Thomas Dooley scored. So it was a US historic Cup. moment. Yep. Um, who else? Like, do you remember like certain players being on the field or were there people that when sure, you came so, on, you were like, wow, this I'm playing against this person now? This is kind of a big deal. So the scoreline uh, doesn't always tell the story. Uh, Tony Miola had one of his games where he stood on his head, and he just shut down every opportunity, including multiple opportunities from the great Ian Wright, who was in on him on a couple of different breakaways and failed to score. And Tony had himself an incredible game in in uh, in goal. And uh, you know, it was it was a. a it was England and what England represented. And there were plenty of England fans and expats in the stands that, that day. But it was, it was heady stuff. And there's still, if you look at the upper deck trading cards, you can actually see um, a couple of different cards. That, one that has me sliding, one that has me being held up by Mike Lapper who I ran to, and he held me up uh, in, his, in his arms. And I'll never forget, Tab Ramos hit the cross in. I scored the goal. It flicked off the side of my head and went in the far, in the far corner. And I came down, and I nearly killed John Harks with an elbow as I tried to get away with him because I knew I wanted to do the run. And when you score a goal... <laughs> Yes, sometimes you run. have it planned out, but you 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 lose you see you lose all ability to function as an actual human being. You go into this ethereal, other otherworldly type of uh, of of existence, and you do things that you have no control over. And so, if you watch, John Harks almost gets my elbow right through his nose, and then I take off running like a locomotive to the other side of the field and uh, and do a slide. I was so excited. So. Like when you're in those types of friendlies, so it's this is 93, is it? 
Yes, this yeah, is 93, so, so a ni- year before the World Cup. So 93, like you're playing a friendly against England, which maybe for you all is is more of a, a big deal for them, obviously with the manager getting fired. I think that was Graham Taylor getting fired yes. uh, at the end of it. Yep. Kind of a big deal for them. But is there like that level of competitiveness? Do you always have that in a friendly like that? Like, Do you have some trash talking or is it usually sort of a bit more good natured than, say, a qualifier or a more official competition? No, I mean, I think the... England got punched on the nose that day, and I think they came in with the feeling that this is just the states, and we'll you know they they'll fight for a little bit and then we'll we'll finish them off and when that wasn't happening then it's then the realization started to creep in look i'm I wasn't talking believe me <laughs> because i I knew even though I was young, I knew enough that at that moment anything could happen and you know, all it took was tony to let a goal in and they'd be right and they'd be right back in it so it was far from one even when we were scoring goals mm-hmm. and we felt we felt good about ourselves and we felt that we could give them a game but this was still england so we weren't we weren't doing any uh any talking but the realization you could see creep into the england team that this is not going to look good for us on the field and this message is going to go uh go around the world so basically, you're saying you know exactly how the uh, Revolutionary War soldiers felt. You just saw the realization that it wasn't going well for England. We can draw that exactly, comparison directly. Perfect. Exactly. Awesome. So, you know, the, the, the English felt that they had a firm grasp on how to play the game, the territory in which they were playing, uh, <laughs> and the support that they were going to have. And yet, on the ground, the reality was, okay, that we, the Americans, were fighting in a completely different way. You didn't actually have the support that you thought you had, and the territory that you were fighting was much better known to the Americans uh, as we were playing in Foxborough. So yes, the correlation and the parallels, uh, you know, to the the uh, the, the the glorious uh, victory of uh, the United States hundreds of years before uh, are not lost on me, ladies and gentlemen. The man can build a narrative. The man can build a narrative. <laughs> uh, we have not uh, actually gone over your list of games, but my assumption would be that if we're starting Starting in 93, there's going to be at least one from the 94 World Cup. Uh, there will be one from the 94 right. World Cup. Before that, though, uh, I will go to 1994 in January of 1994. So six months later, uh, in a little town of, uh, called Seattle, Washington. I've heard of it. Okay. Um, uh, they have invented many things in their uh, long and storied career, uh, including soccer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we went up there, and in what was called the Kingdom, it has since been destroyed and leveled, and they have moved on. Uh, this was a old type of enormous dome type of existence. It was uh, astroturf in its in its very astroturf sense, in that it was concrete with a basically a layer of green carpet over it that's kind of uh, it was it was incredibly sterile and it was more traditional in the old indoor domed type of nfl uh stadiums that mm-hmm. they had having said that fifty thousand people showed up so even back then seattle was a soccer place um and, and a soccer city and they supported soccer and they certainly supported the u.s team we played against russia seattle in 94 i just gotta jump in how much plaid was there in attendance Oh, it was full on grunge. Plaid. All right, that's what I want to hear. Uh, I mean, you know, I remember being at the uh, at the after party on this rooftop bar with Chris Henderson, who now has worked and you know is a Seattle type of legend, um, and and the 
the accompaniment was, you know, it wasn't just like easy listening type of get you through your drinks and your and uh, and your hors d'oeuvres. It was full on grunge. It was so grungy that that's what they were actually playing. So so All it right. was full on Seattle uh, with, what with, with what was going on. Now uh, I scored a goal that day, and and sorry, this was against these, Russia. You said this is against cool. Russia. Uh, I scored a goal. We ended, ended up being one-one, and once again, we were in pre- we were in these preparation games. So this was a friendly. It wasn't part of a tournament or anything. It was just one of those friendly games. Uh, and keep in mind, back then, those blackout dates didn't exist. So we were just playing games, which is why, if you look at me and my generation, we have so many international games because that's all we were doing was playing international games, getting ready for the summer mm-hmm. of '94. So this is six months before we play Russia in Seattle. It ends up being one-one. I score a goal. Once again, it's off a set piece. Mike Lapper actually found his way out wide on the wing and hit a beautiful cross in and I dunked on the Russian defender that was trying to uh, mark me and the reason why I remember this game and why this game was important to me it's not important to anybody else necessarily but it was important to me is that so it was on AstroTurf which meant that we had to decide what type of footwear to wear and for a lot of us that didn't play on synthetic surfaces this was we were it was a quandary so i came up with the idea that i wanted to wear the most comfortable shoes as possible and that meant that i couldn't wear and once again this was old school synthetic surface so i couldn't wear my world cups obviously screw-ins and i couldn't Mm. wear my copas or anything like that i could wear your copas but i didn't want to do that and so i ended up wearing uh, what amounted to racquetball shoes adidas racquetball shoes now that in and of itself is a little bit different but these were really comfortable for me for me and that's what i wanted to wear the problem was this is back in 1994 they were white and I'll never forget going into the hotel room the day before the game where and asking, because I had to get, in order to do this, this is how different and unique it was, I had to get permission from Bora to do this. And I said, look, these are my co- most comfortable shoes. I would like to wear these tomorrow during the game. And he took one look at them, and they were bright, right? Nowadays, it wouldn't even you know, cause anybody to turn their head. And he took one look at them, and he said, um, okay, but if you wear those, you better play well. And, you know, his point was, you're drawing mm-hmm. more attention, by the way, more attention than you already get because of the way they look and everything like that. So if you want to wear them, that's fine. I'm not going to stop you. So thankfully, I played well. Uh, I scored a goal and uh, immediately ran to the uh, stadium. You can find it on uh, on YouTube uh, out there and ran to the uh, ran to the. Uh, the stands and I tried to jump into the stands, didn't quite make it because I ended up slipping on my <laughs> racquetball shoes on the uh, the side stands that were uh, right there. But it was it was a cool day in front of a huge huge crowd, and it, that crowd was all American. All fifty thousand people there were cheering for the United States, and it was it was also a uh, a, a portent. It was it was showing what was to come, and what we now know as Seattle was already. Uh, percolating uh, in Seattle there. And this it was just a wonderful day. And uh, once again, at that point, I was now starting at center back. And, you know, the next six months, we were getting ready for uh, the World Cup to come. Much, much more still to come from my conversation with Alexi Lalas. But first, I wanted to let you know about today's sponsor. You've heard us talk about them before. You'll hear us talk about them again. It's the Black Tux. Uh, if you are looking for a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, be it a suit 
or a tuxedo for whatever your big day might be, then the Black Tux has you covered. The Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fitting experiences you could imagine. Both of them had one experience, I'm going to assume, and it was not great. They rated it one star, but they wanted to be able to provide five-star service. Uh, That's five out of five, I'm going to assume. Uh, And they seem to have been able to do just that. Uh, The Black Tux has showrooms all over the country uh, where you can find your fit and plan your look. But more importantly, uh, especially these days, is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. All you have to do is pick a style at theblacktux.com. You request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and get the quality before you commit. You know exactly what you're going to be getting and exactly how it's going to look. Then you commit. So let's say you have an event coming up or maybe you're just going to be staying at home for a while, but you want to be formal. You want to have the proper formal business attire, even in a relaxed setting of maybe your home office. Then again, you could order black tux. You get it permanently. You wear that tux every day. You look great every day. So if you want your big event or your work from home situation to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code soccer. That's theblacktux.com code soccer for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Thank you very much to The Black Tux for sponsoring today's episode. Now back to Alexi. So, uh, first of all, all I'm picturing is just an entire stadium full of the cast of singles, just repeated endlessly. Uh, so yes, that's what I'm going with very there. much so. I was yep. ready for you to say that Bora made you color them in with Sharpie, because that's the thing that my coach <laughs> used to do. Was like, no, no one can wear flashy shoes. They must be black. They must be simple. So we would have to like color them in if they were too bright and too colorful. Well, speaking of that, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the England game. That that England game that I told you about before. I actually, the United States Soccer Federation was sponsored by Adidas, and we all had to wear Adidas shoes. In the in the England game, I was actually wearing Lotto shoes. I don't know if people remember Lotto shoes. I don't even know if they're still around. But anyway, L O T T O. That's what Daryl wears. I think Daryl goes Lotto okay. or Diodora, one or the other. So Lotto, they're a real old school type of uh, type of soccer type of thing. And I was wearing Lotto shoes because they were, they felt most comfortable to me. And I, and the night before that England game, I remember painting in order to paint over the Lotto signage because I knew that I would get fined back then. And back then. I couldn't afford to get fined. <laughs> and and so I knew that that was going to be a problem. And I literally had paint that you use on, you know, soldiers and, you know, miniature types of things that I went out and bought in order to paint my uh, lotto stripes or symbol out in order to make it look halfway like an Adidas things. And then I put Adidas stripes on them with white paint. So uh, if anybody sees any picture of those, those are actual lotto shoes uh, from that England game. So a lot of shoe references and shoe stories in these first two games. I, I mean, I like it, and I'm here for it. Uh, but it also uh, makes me wonder, like, nowadays when we have the national team in camp, they're, you know, they're very much, like, secluded. They're in their own unit. They don't tend to go out. I mean, if they do, it feels like it's, like, for sponsored events and things like that. For you all, like, if you're going out, are you just sort of like, all right, I'll see you guys later? Are you going out and buying those racquetball shoes? Were you traveling with them? Like, how much freedom did you have at that point? Uh, I, I think Adidas gave me them because i had seen them in a a a manual or a store you know one of the catalog or whatever and i had wanted them as much more lifestyle type of shoes Ah. and they ended up just being really really comfortable uh but oh yeah we bought shoes on the road and look adidas was very good to us they we had to wear adidas but they made sure that you you got the shoes that you wanted but i have really really wide feet um and so i was i was always problematic as i got 
more uh, part of the Adidas family because eventually I signed with them. They actually started making custom shoes for me that were wider, that had built-in orthotics and stuff like that. So I didn't have to paint their competitors' shoes or do anything like that or wear racquetball shoes going forward. So, like, when you have that that deal, are you? I have never had a shoe deal that might shock you mm-hmm. to learn. Uh, do you have a person who you can like message and be like, "Nope, that's too wide. Nope, that's too narrow." Like, is it a Goldilocks situation? Are you really looking for the exact right one? Uh yes, and that was that's back kind of in awesome. the heyday of that was back. Yeah, it was, I guess that, email that was back probably wouldn't be the thing, but yeah, no, no, yeah, it was it was back when shoe deals were ridiculous and they were paying ridiculous amounts of money. They don't do that anymore. I mean, I, 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 that was the golden age of shoe deals and, uh, they wanted you to promote, promote their shoes, to be wearing their shoes. And they wanted to do the things necessary. And actually Adidas turned it into a big thing where they even flew me to Germany to meet with the designers in order to figure out how they were going to put the orthotic in the shoe. And I still have versions of it. And for years and years, I wore those shoes. They're the best shoes that I, that I ever had. The, uh, um, you know, the Adidas shoes that they gave me that were those custom uh, made types of things. So yeah, they, you know, they want to make sure that you're, that you're happy and that you're talking about the brand and that's what you do. And they, they pay you for it, it both in money and in, uh, uh, you know, shoes and clothing and all that kind of stuff. So we've beaten England. We've dunked on the Russians. We've gotten you yes. some shoes. Where are we heading next? So we're heading for, you know, the summer that changed my life and the reason why I am talking to you right now, having lived the power of what a World Cup to do, do to an individual and, you know, an iconic uh, and legendary game, the United States versus Colombia in 1994 happened at the Rose Bowl uh, in the 1994 World Cup. U.S. won two to one uh, on an old goal, a uh, legendary own goal mm-hmm. for a number of different reasons. Uh, and... Uh, that was, you know, people ask me about that game all the time. U.S. Columbia, a hundred thousand people in the Rose Bowl, uh, just a, a wonderful day. And that's that's how I started out because you know the game has taken on such added meaning because of what happened to Andres Escobar, the uh, the center back for Colombia, being murdered a few weeks uh, later, mm. and the pressure that Colombia was on. And I always preface before I start talking about it saying, look, if if any of us that were on the team, if we could change what happened to Andres Escobar by losing that game, I will, and I think all of us would gladly lose that game. Absolutely no problem. But when we talk about this game... Even Winalda? Yeah, even Winalda. <laughs> even Winalda. All right. Uh, but when we talk about uh, you know this game, it I have to separate out the two things because people need to realize that this was the culmination of of the last two years of hard work. We wanted to get out of our group. That was the goal because that meant credibility uh, around the world, but more importantly to our own country. We didn't want to embarrass ourselves in our own World Cup. And getting out of the group, that represented success and credibility. And you win that game against Colombia, which we did. For all intents and purposes, we were out of the group. So we had achieved that goal. And so it's one of the great moments in my life and walking around the field and raising up the flag and seeing everybody going crazy and the tears and the joy and all that kind of stuff. I I don't want that lost, and I I will fight to preserve that. But that's that's only one part of the story. The other part of the story is obviously what happened a few weeks later, and it will always be intertwined and part of the story. But I I think those of us that were th- those of us that were there, we want to maintain that joy of that game with with also re- referencing and recognizing the respect and the incredible 
sadness that came when we woke up still in the World Cup tournament and saw the news reports of what had happened in Colombia to Andres Escobar. And, you know, so it remains just this, this surreal type of moment in my, uh, in my life and in my, in my soccer career. But what a wonderful moment. For people that don't know, Colombia had been touted by many, including Pele, uh, as real contenders. And Pele had even picked Colombia to win the World Cup. And they were stocked with talent, whether it was, you know, Valderrama or Espria, you know, all Rincon, these types of incredible players that they had. And from a, if, I know you guys sometimes get you know, into the tactical analysis of it. If you ever watched that game, one of the things that Colombia did, which we knew was, was, was going to happen, and we had scouted, we had played them before, was they were incredibly narrow. And almost all of their danger was just forced right down the middle, almost in like a pipe down the gut and the middle of the field. And it played right into what we were, what we were doing. And not to get too much into the weeds, but no, please. that's how you we won You know who you're talking to, game. right? <laughs> I know, no, I listen, I know, I know. But that's how we ultimately won that game. We anticipated what they were going to do, and then they never changed. And they just went to the well time and time and time again. And that well dried up really, really quickly. And it played right into the heart of our defense. And we stymied them time after time after time. And then, look, you need a little bit of luck. And that's what the, the own goal was. And the own goal was Andres Escobar running back. And every center back that's ever played the game has been in that situation. The hardest ball to defend is that ball around the back of your back four, your back three. And you're running back towards your goal, and you know that there's a guy off your shoulder. Even though you can't see him, you can feel him, and you got to make that play. And we've done it. I've done it. You put it in your own net because you're just a little bit late, but you still got to make a play on that ball. And, you know, that it happened to him, and, you know, we don't know how much or little ultimately it impacted what happened a few weeks later, but uh, it was it was just an unfortunate event for him. But it was incredible luck for us. And you do need luck no matter how good or, or bad you are. You need a little bit of luck, sometimes a lot of luck, in order to have things go right. And so having that and then Ernie Stewart's going to uh, the other goal was just uh, everything went right for us that day. So I want to stick with Escobar for a moment because, as you said, obviously the aftermath leads to it being this more standout moment. And I, and I wonder, like, for you – like like when moments have such like heavy significance things stand out a bit more and so like in that moment was it a bit more memorable that like oh like was the team very shocked and very sort of in awe of what had happened or the opposite of all I should say or was it just sort of the usual response to an own goal of like ah that sucks all right let's kick off and let's get it back underway like d was it a bigger response or was it about usual for an unfortunate own goal uh there wasn't a bigger response mm -hmm. because i think everybody on that field understood that this can happen for us we looked at it as yeah we'll take that that's not something that we planned for that's not something we scouted for that's not something we trained on or anything like that and so we we took it and i think columbia looked at it as we're columbia so all right we had a bit of bad luck mm -hmm. a ball went in the back and we're, we're still going to score goals we're going to you know valderrama is going to create something or spria is going to run past somebody or whatever is going to happen and then it just never came and they ran out of time and so I don't think in the moment that it happened, anybody looked at it yeah. as anything other than other than, uh, you know, an own goal. And from our perspective, we were lucky and we will take it. And from their perspective, all right, we're unlucky, but we're Colombian. and we'll find a way back. Was there a moment for you, though, when you realized like, oh, we're going to do this or, oh, we could do this? Like, did they start fighting? Did they start getting frustrated? Or was it just sort of when the final whistle blew, then it became reality? 
I mean, look, you go up to nothing and they keep doing the exact same thing. I mean, it was it, it was it was really, I guess, poor coaching and or the the reality is that they were a one trick type of wonder in that they just played so condensed and down the middle and just completely almost either ignored or, or spat on anything anything wide. Now, look, we would have dealt with the wide situation, but at that point, we're, we're up to nothing. And so we're we're pulling back even more and absorbing more and more pressure. And they're just playing right into the forest that existed with, with myself and, and Dooley and Marcelo and obviously Tony and goal-making saves. And if you look at that game, uh, you know, I had one cleared off the line by the goalkeeper on a set piece that should have gone in. Obviously, the, the legendary bicycle kick from uh, Marcelo Balboa. I actually mm-hmm. scored a goal that in today's uh, game would have counted because... I was flagged for offside because the ball, it was one of those real close ones. The ball fell to me, and I, I hit the best shot of my life in the upper 90. But the, the uh, AR, at that point, it would have been a linesman, raised his flag. Now, today, either the AR would have let that play on, or because the whistle went after the ball went in the back of the net, they would have VAR'd it, and it would have been given to me. So I was denied just because of time and history and technology of a World Cup goal if you if you if you end up uh, looking at that game. Is that why you remain pro VAR? Oh, listen, I'm all about VAR. <laughs> I think we should go back and VAR <laughs> previous turn Hey, listen, we all got time on our hands right now. We could it's go true. back and re-ref and VAR <laughs> old games and stuff like that and kind of uh see see what would have changed and all the different uh courses that would have happened. VAR revisionist history? Yeah, I'm into that. There I could do go. that. Uh, so there you go. You said Columbia doing the same things like throughout that game. How alive were you all in the moment to, if they had started playing it wide, do you feel like that's something that you all would have picked up on immediately and adjusted? Or, like, I guess what I'm asking is how how adept were you all at sort of adjusting to what your opponent was doing? Uh, we were good defensively, even if people played it out wide. Uh, it would just be... It's just another facet that you have to deal with. And look, if 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 you're limited to dealing with just one thing, it's that much that, that much easier. But we had trained, and like I mentioned, we had been in residency, especially the the, the goalkeepers and the back four uh, had been in residency for the last year and a half, and we just trained and trained and trained on proper positioning and. Uh, you know the the distances between players and the coordination and the understanding and the starting positions of the back four relative to Sorber or or Thomas Dooley in front of that back four, all of that. So as a unit, and and this this wouldn't happen today in a, in a strange not in a strange way, just evolution and the and the change. But we needed that because so many of us were unexperienced. And we needed to be able to train in day in and day out, and especially defensively. Bora was was all about defense because uh, he recognized that was, there was only so much damage we were able to do from an attacking perspective. And by the way, this doesn't mean that we parked the bus. This doesn't mean that we didn't go forward. But he knew that if we had any chance of being successful, first and foremost, we had to be on the same page when it came uh, to defending. And he went about getting players that he could coach, weren't always necessarily the best players. There were better players than me, but players that fit into what he wanted to do. And I guess that's a, a lesson that sometimes we we fail to to realize is that it's not always about the best players. It's the best collection of players. And and uh, and he found the best collection of players that worked well for what he wanted to do. 
That's interesting. Again, because of like, like I think revisionist history or just the way that team stands out, you think of it as like, oh yeah, they were just always together. They were this like mighty ducks gelled team that knew how to play together. But in reality, yeah, I'm I'm assuming there were people that were brought in that after a couple training sessions, he was just like, nope, that's not going to work. On you go. Oh my god, yeah, that I mean that that's a whole story in its, uh, of itself. That the uh, Mission Viejo training days, uh, we were on, we were training twice a day. We were on month-to-month contracts, and there's some really good players that came in and out. And you would last, you would see a guy come in for a week, and Bora would say, "Nope," and he's gone. He'd pack up his bags. Everyone was staying at the Holiday Inn uh, off of La Paz and the Five Freeway down there in uh, in Mission Viejo, and you would get your meal vouchers, and guys would come in and out. And it was like the ultimate soccer survivor, and you just wanted to be there when that final list was read out. In the end of May of 1994, that puts you on the team for that summer, and not everybody was there. And even people that were there for a long time, like Desmond Armstrong, uh, Jeff Agus, that made it all the way to the end, and then were the last cuts. I mean, it was it was brutal, and it was uh, it was cutthroat in terms of what was going on. But they they were, they came in and out of that hotel and in and out of that team. There were a lot of people that came in that just didn't fit for Boer. Wow. And then how good was Bora, or maybe putting it this way, who was the best coach you ever had in terms of sort of seeing what the other team was doing, seeing the adjustments they were making, and then adapting your game plan to fit that? Could be national team, could be club level, but I'm wondering who was the most like reactive in-game coach that you played for? I have never had a reactive in-game coach because... Is it, or is that not a thing? The, and it's just not me, a thing. The no, honestly, like, oh, that must be a thing. No, they scream and yell and they gesticulate on the on the sideline, but nobody listens to them. And you know they'll put in notes and all that. Your work is done before. And and I'm look. I'm not saying that strategic substitutions or switching to a back three or back five can't be can't be important. But for the most part, your work is done. And players, they're left. That's one of the great things about the game is once you once that whistle blows, you go on the field. I mean, Kobe Jones just. <laughs> <laughs> to be so irritated when, for one half, he was in front of Bora on the side because he was a winger, and <laughs> poor Bora worst. would just scream and yell and berate him. But and there's only yes, you ignore him. It's a lot easier to ignore him when you're playing in the center of the field, like I was, as opposed to if he's right if he's right in your ear. Bora for me was a, a hugely influential because he came at the right time. There was guys that hated Bora, and I completely understand it. Bora could be incredibly frustrating uh, as 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 a player. Uh, when in, in terms of dealing with them, but I was young. I needed somebody to say, you know what? It's not all about kicking somebody. It's not all about the physical part of the game. You need to start thinking about the game. It's not good enough just to get to the ball. Can you actually get to the ball and win it? All of those different things, directional heading, all, all that kind of stuff. And Bora would tell you how to tie your shoes. He would tell you how to take a throw in. All of these things that I never thought about before. And for a lot of guys, it was incredibly frustrating. For me, it meant everything. And ultimately... Above and beyond that, he he had faith in me, and you always have a fondness for coaches that believed in you, especially when other people don't. So that was that was huge in terms of my development as a player. What were you doing wrong when it comes to tying your shoes? Oh my God, Joe Max has incredible stories. I'll never forget, like sitting in meetings where instead of talking about you know how how far in the right back should be pinched when the ball's on the other side of the field. He would look at somebody's shoes and say, no, you can't do that. And his point was the not placement in your <laughs> shoe can actually affect how you strike the ball. And therefore, where All you're right. putting the not is important. I mean, it was it was basically a, a, a nutty way of saying details matter. 
All right. <laughs> and and then which is which is absolutely yeah. absolutely true. But Bora, uh, you know, Bora drove people crazy with with the way that he nitpicked and the things that he did, the lengths lengths of his sessions, all of that kind of stuff. But there was a method to his madness, even though at times we didn't see it. And I butted head with, heads with Bora Bora too, and whether it was about my hair or, or or the way he was teaching or you know me constantly being the question questioner and asking him questions and getting frustrated when I didn't get answers or got answers that I didn't want you know so we all butted heads but ultimately uh I look back with fondness because he he taught me about the game at a time when I needed to be taught about the game all right let's look uh back with fondness to your next game we're on to number four all right, so number four is a game that, while it's legendary, very few people saw. This was in 1995, mm-hmm. a year later, uh, in a place called Paisandu, Uruguay. And uh, the Copa America 95, we were a guest at the Copa America down there. At this point, Steve Sampson is our coach. Uh, we are flying in that, you know, I'm playing in Italy and guys are playing now for the first time and we're bringing all that experience back you know, we were we were feeling very very good at ourselves, and we were a very good team. We had ad, added players like uh, even Greg Berhalter was part of the team down there. Uh, I'm not sure, Eddie Pope, I think, had had, uh, had shown up on the scene. So we were there was more depth, there was more competition, there was more experience. We were flying, and uh, our uh, you know our group down there included Argentina, and we end up in Paysandú, this little place in Uruguay that's also very close to Argentina. So a lot of Argentinians had come across the border to watch this game, United States-Argentina. And we go out there and we smack them. And we smack them 3-0. And goals by Frank Klopas, uh, Eric Winalda, and yours truly from a wonderful assist from uh, from Kobe Jones, who, when he did get out wide and wasn't being berated by, <laughs> by Bora on the sideline, I knew... As everybody did, Kobe had this one move where he would shift his uh, his body weight and his center of gravity and keep the ball on his left foot and do this drag. It wasn't a move. It wasn't over the top of the ball or anything like that. It was literally just a drag. But his body would be ahead of the ball. And so the ball would catch up to him and then pass him because of his first three steps. And he would always create that separation and that distance needed to hit across. And so whenever he got out wide, there was no overlapping. There was no going to him to help. It was let Kobe beat him because nine out of ten times there's going to be a cross. And it was a recirculation on a set piece. The ball comes flying outside to Kobe. He beats his man, puts the cross in. I go near post and I tap it in. So I've scored against Argentina and I've scored in a Copa America and we go on to win that game 3 nothing. a game which was attended, by the way, by none other than Diego Maradona, who uh, was there after the game to greet us and congratulate us, even though we had beat his beloved Argentina. And while it's a huge win, nobody saw that game because it wasn't being televised back other than maybe closed circuit or something like that. And there was very little news, obviously not the instantaneous news age that we live in right now, about what was going on. But as big a moment as anything that I've been a part of, and you know, it was a, it was a wonderful summer, summer for that team that was at, its, at the height of its powers um, in 1995 in the Copa America in Norway. So uh, Ryan and I were talking earlier this week about the Diego Maradona uh, HBO documentary, which is which is really really good if you haven't seen it. Uh, but one of the things they talk about in there is that there are two, there's like there's Diego, who's the kind of soft spoken, quieter, more approachable uh, fella, and then there's Maradona, who refers to himself in the third person and is this sort of mm-hmm. massive figure. Like 
it's a strange question, but like, who do you feel like you met in that moment after the game? Do you feel like you met, was he surrounded by the entourage and he was sort of telling you how it was, or was it a quieter, yeah, more I mean, subdued affair? He was in his Maradona third person type of uh, of situation because he was out in public. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll never forget being in the 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 lounge of the stadium, which was very small, but it was packed with people. And just this parting of the sea. And obviously, because of his, shall we say, diminutive stat- stature, uh, all, all I saw was the parting of people. But I didn't see why, because he was so short, but he was making his way through the crowd. I do think that, you know, while he was in character, if you will, he was genuinely happy for what he saw in the way that we played, uh, in the goals that we scored, and the fact that it, this was not something normal, that this was something extraordinary, which he had seen, even though, like I said, it was against his beloved uh, team. He, you know, there was respect. There was respect for what we had done. And who is the smaller player with a bigger swarm of bodies around him? Is it Diego Maradona or is it Lionel Messi? Because I'm always surprised by how small and sort of rectangular he is, but then the, like, massive wave of people around him at all times can be a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, I think Diego, it's always bigger because he craved it. Uh, and and he bathed in it in a good way. It's not it's not a it's not a bad thing. I mean, he, let's be honest, he is much more viewed as a man of the people than Leo is. Um I mean, hell, Diego's much much more viewed as Argentinian or Argentine. Yeah. I don't know. We 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 were arguing I about what that's supposed yeah. to be. I know. But then then Leo is. So uh so yeah, I mean, he the entourage around him was big and just kept growing, whether it was part of the entourage or just the Pied Piper-esque type of phenomenon that happens when someone like that walks into a room or walks down the street. It's always going to be bigger with Diego. And then for you, like I know you said at this point you're playing in Europe. A lot of the guys are playing in Europe uh, coming back for this one. I'm assuming you've played outside of the United States with the national team. But what is that atmosphere like for you going to the Copa America? I'm assuming for the first time, what's it mm-hmm. like to sort of go from Seattle stadiums, which are full, but they're full of like sort of American fans in the 90s. I'm going to assume that a Copa America is a, an entirely different animal. Yeah. And look, Bora recognized that the more experiences that we could have together as a team, the better off we were going to be, which is why a few years before that, in 1993, we had actually gone to Ecuador to a Copa America. So this was actually our second Copa America. It's one of the things that saddens me is that the U.S. team has been unable to go to Copa Americas that we have been invited for, and we've had to turn down offers for a number of different reasons, not uh, and, and legitimate reasons at times. But I think it's incredibly beneficial to a team to go to a Copa America. And the crowds, the style of play, the adversity that you face, but but the quality that you face uh, and, and the quality of competition that you face that you then will be facing inevitably in a World Cup. Um, I, I just think it's, it, was, it was invaluable to us in 93 when we went and it was invaluable to us in 1994 when, uh, when we met. But yeah, we were not in Kansas anymore. That's for sure. What was like the biggest difference for you uh, when you did first go abroad, either for with the U.S. national team or in your club career? Like, what was there a moment when you were like, okay, this is definitely like a different country, a different experience? I mean, look, everyone talks about the the adversity and the challenge and the uh, the hostility that one faces in the stands, and it's exasperated by the fact that you're America. 
and you are, <laughs> you know, whatever the the imperial, you know, dark side, whatever the great Satan. It depends. I mean, you can be whatever whatever you want to call us. That's that's what we are in the representation, uh, and it's manifested in 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 this soccer team that you are watching out there, and that comes out in how people respond to you. And so, to to see the anti-Americanism on display was something new. Um, now, keep in mind, I was all, at this point in 95, I was also playing overseas, so I had a much greater experience and, and knowledge of what was going on. And so nothing much surprised me anymore, but it was always good to be reminded of it. And I will say that there was also the other side of it to see the kindness and the welcoming and the excitement of an American soccer team competing. And in particular, Paysandu, this little town that I never, ever would have been to, let alone known about, had Copa America not happened. They really embraced us and took us mm. in. And we were theirs, especially when we were playing against Argentina. And so <laughs> we felt like it was almost a, it was a, at times a, a home crowd that we had in Paysandu uh, when we were playing that because they, we were, we were one of them. We were living amongst them for weeks on end. They saw us as visitors and they were incredibly uh, welcoming to us in the city of Paysandu. So that's that's the sort of like with the team experience. Uh, one thing that stands out for me from a while ago was when Josie Altador was playing, I think for Trabzonspor in Turkey, he was tweeting about like, I don't know how to watch the Champions League in Turkey. I have no idea how to do this. And I think his follow-up tweet was like, I'm just standing in the grocery store watching it because they have it on TV here. And it, it, it's a good insight into like what players have to do when they're relocating to like a not Real Madrid or not Barcelona. Like you've got to kind of learn how to exist. W- what mm-hmm. was that like for you when you're first moving to Italy? Like, was how oh big God. of a challenge was it like buying bread or just living your daily life it was i mean look it's first off you know we we talk so much about the 90 minutes and we forget about the other 22 and a half hours yeah, and that. the the you know becoming part of not just a new culture a new language um uh, and, and a new city and country but also having to perform immediately in the fishbowl that is in italy it would be calcio uh, Serie A uh, soccer, and you know that's that was oh, the fact that people cared so much, and that I would get yelled at at the supermarket or the bank or whatever uh, about something I did, either yelled at in a good way because I did something well, or yelled at in a bad way because we lost and I did something poorly. What, but but that response and it wasn't left at the stadium. It, it permeated through everything, so that was new. That was new for me to uh, uh, to have to adjust to. But you know, and it's not just you. It's if you have significant other, your 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 wife or your girlfriend. If you have kids, it's uh, it, it's the food. It's how to function in society. We're we're so spoiled over here in the U.S. because of the amount of soccer that we're able to see, and people come over here and are so amazed at at the amount of soccer and the the ease in which that you are able to access it. And you know, that didn't. I'll never forget asking uh, some players on my team where I could buy a fax machine because it was very important to me in 1994 when I went over there for the first time to have a fax machine for what? business and, and yeah and uh, for business in order to you know get information back and forth and none of them could fathom why I would ever need or want a fax machine or anything like that so but but also keep in mind that the other side was they all had cell phones and I had never had a cell oh. phone. That that to me was like, why? Well, you know, you have a cell phone. Of course, in the ensuing years, uh, and certainly decades, you know, it was 
a cell phone was attached to all of us and we couldn't even think of functioning without a cell phone yeah i didn't really think about that being uh a like sort of ubiquitous thing at the time i do i feel your pain because i remember when i first went to turkey trying to mime uh what a power converter was it's a it's a really difficult thing to say like three into two is a very challenging way to explain what you're looking for so uh i i understand why that would be slightly challenging although probably harder uh for you oh yeah i was on the internet i was on the internet too so i mean they, they couldn't quite understand that or why i was doing that there we go you know, it was a form of communication i remember i remember dialing up aol and the whole you know uh, type of thing that happens and then uh, uh seeing actually i was over there when mls start well it was about to start so i remember seeing the draft and all of my teammates from then would be the new england revolution come come out and uh so yeah you know you you learn to adjust and you learn to to function within uh, you know a very different uh society and culture so fourth game was uh three nil over argentina and copa america 95 are we staying in copa america for the fifth game no we're moving on we're moving on and the last one that i I will say and it it circles back to what we talked about at the beginning the u.s mexico games are always something special and i had played in games where we had beaten mexico uh but i had never played in a game that of more significance than in 1997 in world cup qualifying in azteca stadium 0-0 against Mexico. Why is it important? Well, it's important because for the first time we actually got a point in World Cup qualifying. We had actually been down a man after Jeff Agus got a red card. And and having played in Azteca before and, and just been completely annihilated, it meant so much to me and it meant so much to us at that moment. Now, what were the problems and the challenges playing in Azteca? I always tell people, well, number one, you're playing against a very good team in Mexico. Uh, and oftentimes they were a better team than we were. Number two, you're playing at altitude, uh, and different people have different reactions to that. Uh, number three, uh, and this is this has dissipated a little bit, is the smog. But don't underestimate how bad it was and how difficult it was, especially for people that weren't used to it. And especially people that already had existing conditions. I'll never forget watching Kobe Jones hawk up an incredibly disgusting black loogie at halftime because he has asthma and he used to, you know, use his inhaler and stuff like that. After playing yes. a half at uh, uh, Azteca Stadium and coming in and just, I mean, looking like he had just been spent twenty years down in the coal mines, uh, and it was just disgusting. Now that's changed a lot. The air could, uh, quality has improved since then, but you're still playing in also what amounts to Thunderdome, where it's hard to even see the sky when you walk out at Azteca because it's so high. It's been reformulated a little bit and, and changed and configured a little bit differently now. But you know, back then it was straight up hundred thousand people. Even this was before the Vuvuzela phenomenon. Uh, captured the world's imagination, but Vuvuzelas have been around for a while, including at Azteca, where you would walk out to this incessant humming and buzz that we got to know so well with the uh, 2010 World Cup, but that had been in existence for a while, and it was it was maddening to the senses. Was it the most intimidating ground you ever played in the Azteca? Uh, no, the old uh, Saprissa Stadium in Costa Rica was actually worse. It was smaller, but it was much more on top of you. It was much more hostile, uh, because of the proximity and, uh, you know, but they both had the bags of urine and the batteries and the, and the coins and the, you know, the signs and the burnings of the flag and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I, I love how actually, casually you just throw all that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the bags yeah. of urine, you know, we all deal with that on a daily basis. I loved it. I mean, I, I, once again, that whole punk ethos of go ahead, spit and throw and do all that kind of stuff. I don't care. I, I, I loved every minute of it. 
How much does that permeate like all of society when you're there? Like, are the hotel staff in Mexico friendly? Are the security people when you're heading into the stadium? Or do you get this sort of intimidation, aggression uh, from beginning to end? You no, I mean, look, they people that are there obviously to help you and service you in terms of hotels and, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. I mean, they're on their best behavior, but you do get the feeling that when they clock out for their shift, they uh, <laughs> they, they curse the you and and hope for the worse when it comes to what you're what you're doing. But for the most part, everybody's uh, understands that they have that they have a job to do and they have to make sure that we uh, are accommodated. And then uh, and then kick our ass on the field. So uh, uh, Landon Donovan in like the oral history of the 2002 Mexico game, I think said that at one point like he was just kind of doing the usual trash talking. I'm assuming in Spanish uh, to Luis Hernandez, and I think Luis Hernandez turned around and said like I'm going to find and kill your mother. And he was like, oh, so this is a different level. Like I've reached a new level of trash talk. W- was that like was that an experience you had as well? Did you have that sort of like okay, wow, like you guys are not messing around as opposed to just sort of like ah, you suck. Yeah, I mean, our our rudimentary Spanish and their rudimentary English kind of met in the middle where it was just words that didn't really mean anything necessarily. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the fact that there was a completed sentence to Landon is, is pretty amazing to me. So most of it was, you know involving you know fornication and mothers and 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 all that kind of stuff uh or or things that you should do to someone else or to yourself or have done to you on a consistent basis dialogue that was both in spanish and in english but there was never really a uh uh, a come to jesus moment or or a lengthy type of interaction when it came to the conversation that was going on in the field i you know the the trash talking in soccer first off the space that's involved doesn't lend itself to something like basketball where you're you're the yeah. proximity uh or or football to be quite honest american football because of the stoppages where you have that moment when you can take a time to tell somebody how much you love them or hate them. Uh, so, so that doesn't really happen. And then obviously the language barrier that's going on. A lot of it was based at its lowest common denominator with, you know, F this or F that. So what do you, what did you do in those moments? Because like, if you're walking onto the field of the Azteca for a woke up qualifier, I'm going to assume your, your heart is going a mile a minute. I think like Bobby Warshaw was once talking about like being in playoffs and how it's just, there's so much adrenaline that it's almost impossible to really, truly focus. Did you have sort of routines or drills you would do to keep yourself present and sort of ready to go? Or did you occasionally get overwhelmed by the moment? No, I loved it. I mean, I didn't, I've always felt that if I'm not nervous, I'm not ready. And I've learned to harness that and expect that and welcome that type of huh. feeling in the gut. Um, and by the way, that that applies to even when I when I go on air or, or perform in, in my current capacity. I, I want that. Um, now, you can let it get away with you if you don't harness it. And I think it just comes with time and a recognition of you want to feel that way. Um, so, yeah, I... I I didn't, you know, I had routines and rituals just like anybody else before the games and things that I would do or wouldn't do, what, what I would wear uh, in terms of warm up. Nothing ridiculous or or, uh, or stuff that would be of any entertainment to anybody. But yeah, I mean, I, I I learned to enjoy all of that. And once again, it goes back to the performance. I I, I was ready to perform. I put my costume on. I went out on stage. And the people either reacted or they didn't, but I wanted them to react. 
So you said in the very beginning of this that, like, to use the term hate was a bit uh, hyperbolic when it comes to Mm -hmm. the rivalry with Mexico. But was there one player in particular that you either, like, really wanted to beat or really never wanted to get beat by? And follow-up question, why was it Rafa Marquez? (laughs) Yeah, I I always wanted to play with Rafa Marquez because I thought he was wonderful. I mean, as much of a villain as he is, is... has created uh, him or you know, made himself into being because of his actions. Let's be honest, and because of who he is, I love I love him. I look. You don't have to like people that you play with, and once again, I don't know him personally, so I don't. I may enjoy hanging out with him, but I wanted him on my team because mm-hmm. of how good he was. My 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 problems with Mexico always came when uh, I was marking guys, and this 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 it doesn't necessarily just apply to Mexico, but team uh, guys that were lower center of gravity quicker so like me marking carlos hermosillo that that was no problem because we would just be two heavyweights going at it the whole game and i enjoyed that me marking luis hernandez now that's a little different story because i got to chase him around and i am not let's shall we say the most fleetest of foot and certainly wasn't back then uh, definitely not now uh and so that posed some more problems uh in times of in terms of running around them and then you had you know guys like zage out wide and those types of uh those types of player but the the biggest thing that i think we did when it came to mexico was trying to get the right balance of wanting to take it to them to kind of prove to them and maybe even more so to prove to ourselves that it can be done with the recognition of you know what at some point they're going to olay they're going to be passing, and they're going to have that possession, and we have to be okay with that. So much so that we may even welcome it and want them to do it because we know we can find a way on the counter. And so not to get so spread out or so enamored with ourselves that we do stuff that we're not comfortable with. And it's not that we don't push the envelope, but that was always the balance, at least the way I saw it when we were playing against Mexico because of their ability to maintain possession, their individual technique, uh, and the tactics that they used to lull you to sleep, you can't get lulled to sleep. And as a matter of fact, you have to recognize when that's happening and not be so anxious that then you put yourself in positions where you're going to get exposed. Nowadays, we always hear about like uh, the U.S. getting CONCACAF, and it's it's things happening to the United States. Occasionally, it works out in the U.S.'s favor, like in the Snowfro game. Were mm-hmm. there times for you in, in this era when, like, when Mexico were so technically superior, when they did have the ball so much that you had to do a little bit of that? Like, maybe you leave leave a stud in on a challenge, or maybe you're just a bit more aggressive to try to sort of knock them off the rhythm, knock them out of their mindset. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you need to you needed to set the tone, uh, and myself, Marcelo was always good at that. I mean, he he, uh, I mean, he would architect <laughs> the moment where where he knew it was going to happen, and he was a he was a bastard in the best sense of the word. I <laughs> I loved playing with him because he was also incredibly gifted uh, soccer player and much more skilled than people gave him gave him credit for. But he could. I mean, he would take the ball, the player in the first three rows out. And when you're playing against Mexico, you want, yes, of course you want to get them off their rhythm. You want to, you want to make sure that you are 
setting the tone that says this is not your usual type of game or historically the type of game that you expect from uh, from the states. And look, we we had wonderful games where where we beat them. A game in D.C. that I can remember where we crushed them for nothing, and those were incredibly gratifying. Not just because we won, but how we did it. Even a couple weeks before the World Cup, we actually played Mexico in the Rose before the '94 World Cup in the Rose Bowl, and we ended up winning. And uh, Roy Wagerly scored a goal. We won one nothing, and we actually wore these baby blue uniforms. That um, I'm sorry, I'm not. That's, that's a different one. The baby blue thing is a whole other thing. But that's a whole other story when it comes to uh, to uh, to uniforms. I know uh, times we talk about that. But we beat Mexico a couple weeks before the World Cup in 1994. I'll never forget because. Um, Nightline with Ted Koppel was doing a story, and we won, and it was in front of 100,000 people, but it was, let me, let's be honest, 98,000 of them were cheering for Mexico, and I'll never forget Ted Koppel running up to me with his microphone when the whistle blew. We had won. It was just a friendly game, but it was preparation for the World Cup, and running off the field with Ted Koppel saying, hey, Ted, we might want, we might want to uh, you know, do this in the, uh, in the confines of, the, uh, uh, of under the stadium or in the locker room right now. It's not probably good for us to be hanging out here. Has there ever been uh, – uh, you've been very generous with your time. I don't want to take up too much more of it. I've got a couple more questions for you, though. One of which sure. is, has there ever been a game like on U.S. soil where you felt like the United States had that level of intimidation when the crowd was that raucous that maybe the opposition did feel a little bit intimidated? Because hmm. I feel like the answer is probably no. No. I mean, even Columbus, mm-hmm. it was much more as – I think it's always been more that – the power, whatever power that is, fueled the U.S. team as opposed to that f- that power yeah. posed problems for the opposition. In this case, it would be it would be Mexico. I mean, look, my generation, we grew up playing games in our own country that were, for all intents and purposes, away games. My wife went to actually to a U.S.-Mexico game in the Coliseum. I mean, and those games in the Coliseum were against. Uh, any Central American uh, team were always dicey and just crazy, and it was never a home game for us. And you know, playing against Mexico in those types of games. But you know, since then, obviously, people talk about what Columbus was uh, and hopefully continues to be, or I don't know, maybe it, it changes. But I don't think we've ever had the the, the power that really impacts the opposition. I think it much more buoys the the U.S. team. And that, man, that's okay. You know, that's that's all right. That's still powerful. And then uh, final question for you. I would agree with that, by the way. Final question. Uh, we've talked about this, I think, many years ago, but I cannot remember, so I'm going to ask you again. When was the game and what was the situation with the brawl and the sucker punch slash, I guess more appropriately, sucker tap? Oh, the kick. Yeah, so that was, oh, was a, a kick? Yeah, it was a kick. Oh, uh, wow. I thought, two, it was a, I thought it was a slap. A full, I thought it was a kick. No, it was a full frontal assault uh, on my manhood Oof. and happened at the Rose Bowl. It wasn't a, a sold-out Rose Bowl team, uh, or Rose Bowl game, but it was still a U.S.-Mexico game, and it was a coming together that moment where everybody kind of tries to act together. tough, and everybody screams and yells at each other, and um, you know the uh, that, that scrum type of mentality happens, and I'm pointing at you, and you're pointing at me, and so a lot of stuff can happen. This is obviously before VAR, and I'm sitting there screaming and doing my best hard ass. Inter, uh, you know, impression and all of a sudden I get kicked I mean right between the legs and I go down like a ton of bricks and all hell breaks loose and uh, you know the Mexican player had uh, had kicked me you know where the sun don't shine and uh, it was 
yeah, it was a full it was a full frontal assault. You can find that on <laughs> on YouTube too. So people ask me about that a lot too. Do you remember who it was, or have you all uh, spoken since? Uh, I have spoken to him. Okay, uh, we're gonna leave it. He, he shall remain. He, he okay. shall remain remain nameless. Uh, you know, because I, I've moved on. You know, right. I've I've been married and had children, and you know, That's we've, good. <laughs> we've all sufficiently recovered since then. But you know, it it the animosity that you feel towards an opponent or an adversary in a sporting context can manifest in a bunch of different ways. And the person that you are on the field can be very different than the person you are. You know, for example, the great Clay Coyman, uh, who I played with in the 94 World Cup, um, was an absolute animal. Um, and I, I, I've never seen anybody so nuts on the field of play. And yet off the field, he was this teddy bear and incredibly gracious and compassionate. And uh, just a, he's just a wonderful human being. But, you know, the, the, the sporting platform, if, if you will, it, it changes people. It, it gives you license to be something that you aren't in, in good and bad, in bad ways. And sometimes the, the biggest jerks and uh, end up being wonderful actual human beings off the field. But, you know, you put them in that, in that cage and the animal comes out. You're talking about Jason Davis now, right? Yeah, Jason. <laughs> exactly. He's such right. a you know, he's such a kind you know pussycat of a guy. Uh, you know, out, outside the cage, but you know, you put him in the cage. So he's tenacious. He's tenacious. Yes. He well, well he Alexi, is. I really appreciate you taking uh, all the time to to tell us some stories. Uh, if if things continue as they are, we, we may have to do it again. Uh, for for both uh, like I guess like our mental well beings of just chatting to yeah. other humans. It's always a good yeah. time. Well, you know, all we have is time, unfortunately, right now, and uh, everybody's trying to fill it with whatever they can. So I, I you know, I, I want to, you know, shout out and uh, send all my warm feelings to all of your listeners out there. You guys do a great job, by the way, uh, with what you do and the amount of content that you're producing, whether it's your own or the new shows, is wonderful, and you're you're keeping us uh, fed, if you will with the type of soccer content that we uh, that we love. So it's always a pleasure and it has been for years to to know you guys personally but also to come on and, and talk about these things. I hope people enjoy them. I hope people are staying safe. Uh, I hope that this craziness that we are in comes to an end and then we can you know, return to a world that involves soccer uh, and a new normal, I guess, if you will. But, you know, please do the things to keep yourself uh, and everybody around you, uh, not just in your country, in the world, uh, safe and stay sane and talk and communicate and reach out to people, uh, whether it's about soccer, whether it's uh, me or anybody else. If you want to scream and yell at me or argue about stuff, we can we can certainly uh, certainly do that. Our, our world and our time needs these respites uh, to be able to uh, take us off of much more important and serious things and and finally you know we, when we talk about these things i feel like i have to caveat everything that we do we all understand that this is just soccer and that this is just mm-hmm. a game and in no way does this you know reach the the heights of of the important stuff and the serious stuff out there but this is what we talk about and if this just takes your mind off things for a little bit um in uh, in some way then uh, it has a power and it has a a good associated with to it so thank you for doing that Well, that seems a fitting note to end on. So, Alexi, thank you very much once again. Always lovely to chat. 